Welcome. Lord, as we come to your word, uh, may you open the scripture to us and may you open us to the scripture. God, the Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence here. We ask that you will help to illuminate the message in our mind and to warn our hearts to the message and to transform our will to be obedient to it. We thank you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, six weeks ago, we embarked on this exciting journey to study through the book of Exodus, uh, the second of the so-called five books of Moses. Each week, we have been progressing through the main storyline where the plot thickens as God reveals more and more of himself by both miracles and speeches. Now, last week, Douglas led us through chapters 5 and 6, where the Israelites met their first major resistance. When Moses went for the first time to tell Pharaoh to let the people go, um, Pharaoh only increased their labor and made life even more unbearable for them. At the end of that episode, the Lord ended up reassuring Moses by saying, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Indeed, by a mighty hand, he will let them go. I will redeem my people with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. What God meant by mighty acts of judgment was a reference to the ten plagues that was to before Pharaoh and the Egyptians in chapters 7 to 12. And there will be two sermons preached on these chapters. But today we will fast forward a little bit to look at the final plague that is also called the Passover first. And next week, hopefully Douglas, Douglas will come back to the first nine plagues and to explain the meaning of the bewildering scenes of the frogs and gnats and flies and locusts and hailstorms to you. Because, to be honest, of the two sermons, the first nine plagues is far more difficult to preach on. So we'll just leave that hot potato to our well-learned pastor so I don't have to deal with it. Today we'll look at three things. We'll look at plague, and then Passover, and then the pattern for our salvation. Plague, Passover, pattern for our salvation. You still with me? Good. Let's look at the first one, plague. The event described in chapters 11 and 12 is first of all a devastating plague. This final plague eventually forced Pharaoh to let Israelites go, and therefore set in motion the exodus, the going out, the leaving of God's people from the land of Egypt. And here is Moses' annunciation to Pharaoh about the upcoming disaster. Chapters 11, 4 to 5. Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out through Egypt. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the female slave who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the livestock. Then there will be a loud cry throughout the land of Egypt such as has never been or will ever be again. But not a dog shall growl at any of the Israelites, not at the people, not at animals, so that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Then all the officials of yours shall come down to me and bow low to me, saying, Leave us, you and all the people who follow you. 
after that, I will leave. And in hot anger, he, that's Moses, left Pharaoh. Wow. That sounds a bit too harsh, doesn't it? To our sensitive modern ears. Why this harsh plague? Why killing the firstborns of all people? Or the Egyptians? Why any of the ten plagues? These are hard things to learn for us moderns. And these are legitimate questions. We don't have time and space today to fully address them. Let's hope the Douglas will be able to answer this question more fully next week. But today, for now, let me just remind you that the book of Exodus itself provided us with a glimpse into God's mind, if it were, as it were, for the purpose of this plague, this divine act of judgment. There are threefold, one moral, one practical, and one theological. Let's look at the moral reason first. The moral reason for these divine acts to punish Pharaoh and the Egyptians for their cruelty and arrogance. Let us not forget the glaring moral failure of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. You remember back in chapter 2 when God first told Moses in the burning bush, he was clearly aware of the suffering, oppression, and cruelty that the Israelites were facing. He said way back in chapter 2, I have observed the misery of the people, of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians. I have seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. The cruelty, the ruthless oppression of the Israelites, the decree of killing all Hebrew newborn boys, the persistent disrespect for the Lord Yahweh, the hard-hardened arrogance, the horrific stomach-churning practices in ancient Egyptian religious rituals. These are but a few examples of the moral reason why God was judging and punishing Egyptians through these divine acts. And then we have this practical reason. Did it ever occur to you that our God is an amazingly practical God? He's not just out there giving you big ideas for living your life, but he's practical. And the practical reason is to make Israelites favorable in, in the sight of the Egyptians so they'd leave the land with the abundant resources for their future needs. Who would have thought? You see, after the last plague had happened, the Bible says this, the Egyptians urged the people to hasten their departure from the land. For they said, we shall all be dead. The Israelites had done as Moses told them. They had asked the Egyptians for jewelry of silver and gold and for clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. And so they plundered the Egyptians. So they plundered the Egyptians. Of course, none of this was surprising to the Israelites because God had specifically told them to do so beforehand. Even Pharaoh said that the Egyptians could take all their flocks and herds. They just want them gone as quickly and as completely as possible. You see, the plagues have caused fear and awe for Yahweh in the Egyptians. And this fear and awe has spilled over 
to the Israelites, whom Yahweh, their God, was fighting for. That in the end, the Egyptians became favorable towards the Israelites, so much so that they're willing to contribute departure gifts for their exodus. And of course, God is the mastermind behind all this, a very practical mastermind. God knew that his people needed money and resources to survive the desert and the wars and to establish themselves in the promised land when they come in possession of it. And God provided everything they needed abundantly for them. I don't know if the Israelites at this point would remember that their great ancestor, Abraham, once gave a name to God Almighty. Jehovah Jireh. Does anyone know the name, the meaning of this name? Jehovah Jireh. It was a name that Abraham gave to God when God provided for him a ram to replace his dying son Isaac to be sacrificed. The Lord provides. The same Lord provides for Abraham's descendants here everything they needed for the new chapter in their nation's history. The Lord provides. That's the awesome God that Israelites worshipped. And that's the awesome God you worship today. How many zillions ways that God has provided for you and how many times have we forgot, forgotten His benefits to us? The last reason is theological, which is far more important than the first two. The theological reason is to shape the Israelites' worship and identity. Bible scholars have long identified this idols-destroying purpose of this, of this plague. Each plague was associated with a display of Yahweh's power and superiority over each Egyptian god. Besides providing for the Israelites' um, practical needs, what is far more important in these acts is shaping their view of Yahweh and forming their new identity as his people. Yahweh wants to show them that he alone is divine. He alone is God. He alone is superior over all other gods, not only in Egypt, but across the entire world. He alone is worthy of mankind's worship. He also wants to instill a new identity into their hearts and minds, that they are his people and he is their God. They belong to him. And this dual emphasis on worship on the one hand and identity on the other is purposeful because the ancient, the entire ancient world was a polytheistic world. It's a mouthful word, isn't it? That basically means worshiping of many gods, polytheistic. There are, there were gods for war, gods for food, gods for fertility, gods for sex. God's for many other things. Not only the Egyptians, but the people groups in the desert and the people groups in the land of Canaan, they were to settle. They were all polytheistic and idolatrous people. But not Yahweh's people. They were not to be idolatrous, but to be a monotheistic people, which is worshipping of a singular God. They were to come to trust the only true God and worship Him alone. 
And by the way, that's the key theme of not only Passover, but not only of Exodus, the book, but also the all five books of Moses, what we call the Pentateuch. The Passover, the Exodus, is just the beginning of the formation of the nation of Israel into a monotheistic, obedient, and distinct people, so that the whole world would come to fear and worship the name of Yahweh. That's quite awesome, isn't it? Now we come to the second dimension of the message, Passover. Let us hear Moses' instruction to the Israelites as to how they should prepare for the first Passover. Chapter 12, 21 to 28. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go, select lambs for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood in the basin. None of you shall go outside the door of your house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike down the Egyptians when he sees the blood on the on the lintel and the, on the two doorposts. He will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike, to strike you down. You shall observe this right as a perpetual ordinance for you and your children. When you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this observance. And when your children ask you, what do you mean by this observance? You shall say to them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed down and worshipped. What is the life-taking plague is at the same time a life-giving Passover. Plague and Passover are two signs to the same coin. If the plague is a sign of God's judgment on the Egyptians, Passover is the sign of God's covenantal grace for his own people. And the phrase covenantal grace is the key biblical concept for understanding God's dealings with his people throughout history. You see, the God of the Passover is a covenantal God. Up until this point, the Lord has repeatedly told the Israelites that he's the same God who appeared to their ancestors, that he had made a covenant with them, and he means to keep the covenant regardless of his human counterpart's faithfulness or the lack of it. Back in chapter 4, when God first showed up to Moses in the burning bush and told him to deliver a message to the Israelites, God said this, so that they may believe that the Lord Yahweh, the God of of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, has appeared to you. In chapter 6, God said to Moses again, I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, that is Yahweh, the great I am, I did, not make, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them and give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they resided as aliens. A little further on, he said again, I have remembered my covenant. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Can it be made more clear than this? The time has fulfilled for God to take Abraham's descendants to be his covenant people. He's not making a new covenant with them. He's basically renewing the covenant, the same covenant with this people nation. He would shower grace, faithfulness, protection, and discipline on them for no other reason than that Yahweh has chosen to do so because within a covenant relationship. And so therefore the, the Passover to the Israelites is a sheer unmerited grace. There's nothing they have done that deserve this. Their firstborns were saved not because they were good people with a better human nature. They were not saved because they were more righteous or more moral or more kind, more diligent, more good-looking, more likable than the Egyptians. No, 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 no. They were all the same in God's eyes. We are all the same in God's eyes. We don't deserve it except for His sheer grace. They were spared because of the sheer grace of God that marked them as the chosen people because it glorified God. You know, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, last time I was, pre- I, I was preaching, I introduced you to the concept of biblical story, remember? Okay, good. Apparently you did it. Good on you on listening to sermons. <laughs> the grand biblical story from Genesis to Revelation can be seen as the eventual fulfillment of God's covenants made with his chosen people through salvation history. First with Adam and Eve, then Noah, then Abraham and his descendants, then Moses and the nation of Israel, then King David and his descendants, then finally Jesus and God's new covenant people, the church. Passover, therefore, is one, although a significant one, of the many signs throughout the Bible of God's covenantal grace to his people. So that's the Passover, covenantal grace. We've looked at the threefold purpose for God's divine acts of judgment, the moral, the practical, and the theological. And we've just seen that the Passover is the flip side to the plague. Even as God was inflicting plagues on one people, he was showering covenantal grace on his own people. Lastly, we come to look at the pattern of our salvation. What is the pattern of our salvation seen um, in the Passover event? Now, the law of Moses or the five books of Moses are foundational and extremely important for Christians as well as for the Jews. Uh, many of the themes and motives in these books are picked up by Jesus himself and the New Testament writers, and they are applied to the new covenant salvation found in Jesus. And in particular, the New Testament writers understood that the Passover event points most directly to Jesus' saving work, and that provides a, a pattern a model for us to understand our salvation. Perhaps no other New Testament scripture are more clear about this than the following two. There is the first Corinthians 5, um, just one sentence, the Apostle Paul says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And then there's the more elaborate um, passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, on the screen there, Apostle Peter says, knowing 
that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The first real Passover lamb and the thousands more after it foreshadow the better and the final Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. For the blood and death of the lamb is the only means through which God ordained to give new life to his people. And just as the Passover lamb's blood on the doorpost and on the lintel caused the destroyer to to pass over each household, Christ's atoning blood causes God's judgment to pass over sinners like you and me and give new life to us. And just as the Israelites were asked to apply that blood in faith obedience as a necessary response to God's sheer grace, so we also need to respond to this grace by applying the blood of Christ on the doors of our heart in faith and obedience. The simple fact that you come to sit here each Sunday and that you long for God and His kingdom is a testimony that each one of you has had your Passover experience. Can you remember your Passover experience? It may be one of event, quite dramatic, but it could be a period of time where you finally came to worship this true God. Can you remember your Passover experience? By grace, God has chosen you to be part of His covenant people, the church, the children of God, the bride of Christ, the temple of spirit. You then, at some point, responded to this grace by applying Jesus' sacrificial work onto yourself. Your sins were transferred onto Christ your old self crucified with him, you are brought alive in Christ into the kingdom of God's Son. New creation, new life, new beginning, new status, new purpose for life. Don't forget your Passover. But is that all? Is that the whole story of our salvation? It's not a rhetorical question. No, thank you. No, because Christian salvation is not, yes, I'm not going to hell, so I can do whatever I want for myself. What a great decision I made 20 years ago for myself. No, 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 no. Christian salvation is this. Wow, what amazing God you are. Thank you, Jesus. Now that I've got a new life, and I'm going to spend eternity with you, Starting from now, what can I do to prepare for that? What can I do for you with my life? It's not escape from hell so I can do whatever I want. It's thank you, Lord, you have saved me. Now I'm going to dedicate my whole life to you. In a minute, we will come to the Lord's table to take communion. It is especially fitting for us to receive God's blessing and grace in this table after exploring the meaning of Passover. But let me remind you that on the night, the Lord instituted this sacrifice with his disciples. 
And on that night, the ultimate Passover lamb was sacrificed for them and for you and for me. Jesus said, come, come take this. Come take my blood and my body, which is given for you, so you may have new life. So when we come to this table, let's remember that the Lord has asked us to look into the past, remember, do this in remembrance of me, that to remember what Christ has done for you. And he has asked to observe this, to remember, to receive now all the spiritual blessings and benefits in this table because Christ's real presence is here with us. And also, looking to the future, Lord has asked us to anticipate the future marriage feast between Christ and his bride in the full kingdom of God. Past, remember, now receive future, the marriage feast of God's kingdom. And that's the meaning of Passover. Let us pray. Lord of God, what can we say after this? What are the models that you should be mindful of them? Who are we that you should be the covenantal God for us? Lord, we just ask that your spirit will, will go before us and just warm our hearts to the saving grace of you. As we come to the table, help us to draw close to our Lord Jesus Christ. May we never forget his benefits to us. May we never forget our initial Passover experience. And may we never forget we're called to a lifetime of transformation and formation for you. So the, may, the whole world may come to know you as well. Have mercy on us, Lord, we pray. Amen.